Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their mouths to their, their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. And listen to what they are saying. Afterward you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend about his dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, He worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the three hundred men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of them all with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets... Then all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they'd changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their right hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, 
All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshittah, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite kings, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Thank God for his word given to us today. Just going to pray before we come to God's word. And be good to remember in particular in prayer, uh, just the, the Glencoe Outdoor Centre. Ross Laurie works there, he's working there, training there. And the, the centre is going through a real crisis because a, a major funder has pulled out. So they've got real needs financially, a big challenge getting some other sponsor, somebody else to come and get on board. So let's just pray for the work that goes on there. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the work of the Glencoe Outdoor Centre. Thank you for the way that you've used it over the years to bring blessing to many families and many young people. That it's there to be a witness to you, to the groups that come and visit and also within that, that community. Lord, we, we pray for them, for their practical needs at this point, And we thank you that that you're a God who can provide for all the needs of your children. So we ask that there will be a response to that need, that you'll place it in the hearts of your people and that the finances needed for that work to go on and develop will be given. Father, we thank you for Ross and for the, the way that he has just got so involved in, in the work that's there, for the way that it's brought him on and developed him just as a young person, but also as a young Christian. We thank you for him and we pray for him that the work there will carry on and that the work that he's doing that is so important to him that he'll be able to grow in this over the years to come. Father, we just place him and that work there into your hands. And at the same time, we come again as your people in need and just so much desiring to hear again from your word. We pray that you will speak directly into our hearts and lives now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's often said, isn't it, that life is full of surprises. And it is, but we've all got memories, I'm sure, of surprises. Some good and some bad. And as I was thinking about that, one stood out in, in my mind. And it relates to a time when I was in the army a long time ago and serving in Germany. Um, the unit that I was part of had just got a new regimental sergeant major and myself and a, a good friend from Belfast, Jim Donnelly, we'd kind of got the old one a wee bit wrapped around our fingers and we decided we didn't like this new one one little bit because he was a bit bossy. Sergeant majors usually are, but anyway. So in the middle of a night of, shall we say, exuberant celebration, 
we came to the conclusion that we would run away from Munster where we were stationed to Holland. And when we got to Holland, we knew we'd have a great old time because we'd been there before. Basically, we're going to go AWOL, absent without leave, as they call it in the army. So we got our sleeping bags, we packed a few strange things into our rucksack, and off we went. And we walked for what seemed like hour after hour. We covered mile after mile until eventually we got a lift. The man in the car, though, only drove on, drove us for 20 minutes, and then out we got, and we were tired by this time, so we just unrolled our sleeping bags on the grass verge at the side of the road, and off we went to sleep. And I was just not standing about this, I thought, a camouflage sort of sleeping bag on the edge of a grass verge wasn't the smartest thing we ever did, but in the morning it was okay, because when we woke up, we'd both rolled down the banking, and we were sleeping half in and half out of a little stream. But we didn't give up, off we trudged again, determined to make it to Holland and Liberty. So we walked again for what seemed like a long time, must have been three or four hours anyway, until we reached that last civilization, the outskirts of a big town or a big city. How close are we now, we wondered, to the Dutch border? So we asked the very first person we saw, an old man, where we were. Oh, he said, this is Munster. Somehow, sometime during the night, we'd actually turned back in on ourselves. And so by that time, we'd spent about 15 hours walking back to exactly where we'd started off from. That was a big surprise. It wasn't so surprising when 10 minutes later, the military police obviously having been alerted to us, caught us. But I'll tell you, I was so happy when they drove up, I ran to be captured. I'd had enough by that time. So life, as they say, is full of surprises. I've had a few of them, and I'm sure you've had your share as well. Well, you look at this passage, you look at this passage in, in Judges, this episode in Gideon's life. This too, when you first look at it, seems totally surprising as well. Does it not? I mean, the details of this story seem to, to really defy any kind of common sense understanding. The fact that God should cut back the armies of Israel in what at times seems to be a rather strange and arbitrary fashion. And the conclusion of this story, that, that 300 men and, and lightly armed at that should defeat an army of 135,000 armed with the best weaponry equipment that the world at that time could provide. Well, isn't that surprising? Isn't that amazing? Certainly viewed from this world's perspective, it is. But you see, what I believe and what I want to take time to share with you and explore with you now is that from God's perspective, this in fact is very much the norm. Yes, this is, as we're going to now see, this is God's way. God's way. Well, what you might perhaps ask is God's way. It's God's way, not to work through the obviously powerful, but rather to work through the apparently weak and insignificant. And I mean, you can trace this through as a theme, just right through the Bible. This is typically God's way. He takes people, he chooses people who are nothing in the eyes of this world, and then he uses them to do great and mighty things. I mean, think of Abraham. 
and his little band of wandering tribesmen who were chosen by God to be the starting point, to be the origins of a people, of a mighty nation called to be his. Now you see, God could have chosen a great prince for this purpose. He could have chosen the leader of an already existing nation, but he didn't. No, he chose rather just a simple desert tribesman and his handful of followers. Just think of Moses, called to take the promised land with a band of ex-slaves and refugees. Or think of Nehemiah, who with a ragtag remnant of Israel rebuilds Jerusalem in 60 days. Or David, the boy, who defeats the giant Goliath. Think of the disciples themselves, who are very much a mixed bag, who certainly all had their moments of terrible failure, and yet who were used by God to turn this world upside down and to turn this world to Jesus Christ. But why, you might ask, why does God act in this way? Well, I can think of three reasons. The first two contributing to the third and the major reason. And it's the first God acts in this way to keep his people in their place. Look at what it says in, in verse 2 here. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. You see, God works through the weak. Often he waits until we are weak before he walks through us because he knows that that is the best way to keep us in our rightful place of humility, obedience, and submission. Also, I believe that, that God acts in this way, working through the weak, in order to open the eyes of this world to his glory. See, as Paul says in his famous words, speaking to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and following. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, God works through the people that he does because he knows that eventually the world will realize that what they have achieved could not be done by them. So it has to be the Lord. Now this realization will bring some to faith. It will, but, but not all. No, the reaction of others will be one of fear and antagonism to this. But the important thing, though, is that no matter what, the eyes of the unbelieving world have been opened to recognize the Lord. And that brings me on to the, the major reason why I believe God so often works through the weak and insignificant. And that is so that in the end, all the glory goes where it belongs. It all goes to him. And this isn't about egotism. This isn't some kind of divine ego trip. 
For you see, for me to want glory, that is egotism. Because I'm not worthy of glory. And even if by some miracle I were to do something worthy of glory, well then the pride that in all probability that would produce would be a disaster for me. But for God to get glory, that's not a disaster. No, that's the way things should be. Indeed, it's as we give God glory, it's as we put him in his rightful place, it's then as we do that, that our lives, our communities, and our world then begins to fall into place. But before we move on, let me just underline a a couple of points I want to make sure I've made clear to you. First, this fact that weakness and insignificance, lack of talent, numbers and gifts, that these are not a reason why we shouldn't be used by the Lord. But in fact, to the contrary, if this is actually where we are, if this is the kind of person that we feel we are right now, then this makes it all the more likely that we will be used by God. We're in the right place. If only we're open to be used by him. If only we're willing to be used. I hope I've made that clear. But all this might leave you thinking though, but what if I have got talents and gifts and abilities and you know, I can't deny them? Does that mean that I cannot be used by God? Does that mean that God will not use me? It doesn't mean that. But there is, I believe, less likelihood that the Lord will lose, use us mightily. For all the reasons we've just touched on. But from our perspective, particularly the fact that it's so easy, if this is the case, for human pride to again raise its ugly head. It's so easy for us to begin to imagine then, secretly, in the hidden places of our hearts, we would never dare say it out loud because it sounds, because it actually is so unspiritual. But it would be so easy, we would say, that really secretly, that the real secret of our success is us. You know, that it's what we have done. It's been about how hard we can work, that it's been our ingenuity, our programs, our excellent planning, that it's us rather than the Lord that's done it. And Gary Enrig here puts it like this. He says... You cannot be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. If you want the credit for what God is doing, God will not use you. Also, what I want you to take note of here is that it's, it's when God gets us to the end of ourselves. And often... That takes time because we're so proud and so self-reliant, so stubborn. But it's when God gets us to the end of ourselves, to that point where we're ready to give up, and when we realize, Lord, we cannot do this by ourselves. It's beyond us, so it's up to you. It's then, throughout history, that so very, very often, God has stepped in and acted. But what does God do, though? It's when he decides to act through the weak, through the insignificant. What kind of methods does he use? How does he actually go about this? Well, let's move on to to look at that now as we move from looking at God's way, his typical way of working, 
to look instead at the means, to look at the method God uses as part and parcel of this, certainly here. And to my mind, there are two significant factors that we see here. And one of them revolves around the number of troops that Gideon has, the drastic reduction in the numbers of his already weak army that's enforced here upon him as he tries and prepares to meet his mighty enemy. And the other concerns the the content of this dream of the Midianites that's later overheard by Gideon. Well, as far as the the first is concerned, the drastic reduction in, in troop numbers, the facts are that it has to be said that this is a an incident that's surrounded by, by a fair bit of debate. Because some feel that all the various steps that the Lord takes here, and as Gideon take, that they're simply arbitrary acts. They're not really all that significant. They're designed only with the intent of getting the numbers down sufficiently to ensure that, that all that we've said repeatedly this morning actually happened. That is, that, that everyone would be under no illusion that this was an act of the Lord, and so all the glory went to him. Now, now for myself, I'm not convinced of that. And for the simple reason that if the Lord had wanted the numbers reduced simply for this purpose, if this was all that was going on here, well, then he wouldn't have had to put his people through this rigmarole. Why do it? All he would have had to say was, Gideon, choose 300 men. So no, I think there is significance, there is underlying significance in the way the Lord reduces Israel's army here. The first step, where he gives those who fear the challenge that's before them the opportunity to return home. And by doing this, reduces the army from 32,000 to 20,000. This, I believe, is a test not of ability, not of ability, but a test of faith. You see, what God's sorting out here are those who have the faith to believe that he can win the victory, even over such incredible odds. The next step in number reduction, though, is a bit more interesting. Because Gideon is is told to tell the, the people to take a drink, as simple as that, to watch how they drink, and then to separate those who lap like a dog in a way from those who kneel down and drink. What's this about? What's this test about? Why that leaves him with a remnant of of 300 men? What's that about? Well, think of what we have here. The men who kneel simply fall down on their knees and drink. And as they do it, they're forgetting about everything else. All they're concentrating on is getting that drink. Those who lap, though, whose verse 6 makes clear, raise the water to their mouth in their hands. We see they're still keeping their spear in the other hand. And they're still keeping alert. They're still on guard. They're still looking out for the enemy. Well, you see then, what this test, I believe, is about is about sorting out those who have an awareness of the nature of the conflict that they're in. You see, these are men who are totally committed and focused on the task in hand. 
They know their priorities. And so they won't take their eyes off the enemy. They won't switch off, no matter what. And these are the 300 men that God is ready to work through, to do wonders through. Not men of outstanding gifts, outstanding talents and abilities, but rather men of faith. Men of simple faith and men of absolute commitment. Totally focused on serving their God. And that is all that we need before the Lord is able to walk through us. That simple faith and absolute commitment. That's one significant factor then in the the means that God uses here. That's my understanding of what's going on in this number reduction. The second significant factor, as we've said, lies in this dream of the Midianite century. Well, the dream in itself isn't particularly difficult to interpret. You don't have to be a Joseph for this. It's quite simple. You've got two main components and then you've got one final outcome. That is a round loaf of barley bread and a tent that is struck by that loaf and then collapses. Now you see, barley at this time was the food of the very poor. Only the very poor ate barley. So this then obviously represents here the poor and oppressed, the starving people of Israel. And the tent, well the tent, that obviously represents the wandering, the nomadic people of Midian who typically lived in tents. But you see, one of their tents, well they were massive, strong, robust tents. One of them being knocked down by a barley loaf. That's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's as ridiculous as as the army of Midian being defeated by 300 Israelites. However, it's not so much the details of, of this dream that are important, but rather it's Effect, Because you see, in our army, if a soldier had a dream like this, that, that his force of 135,000 heavenly armed men would be routed by a ragtag band of 300 ill-equipped guerrilla fighters, well, if that happened, nobody would listen to them. It would be put down, I think, to too many cheese sandwiches, perhaps, before going to bed. But you see, in Gideon's world, this wasn't the case. Now at this time, dreams, and certainly symbolic dreams at, at, at really important times, they were seen as of great significance. They were seen as tremendously important. And, and maybe just to digress for a moment, it may well be that we could learn something from this. I sometimes suspect that we've got too much what we call common sense, worldly common sense, for our own good. We're not ready for God to speak in different ways. But you see, the effect of this was twofold. First of all, it struck fear into the heart of the Midianites. For they began to realize, they didn't know how, but in some way that Israel's God was going to defeat them. They began to suspect, they began to fear that this was going to happen. And rumors of this must have swept around the camp because nothing else surely can explain the rout that just a little later takes place. But also... 
This has an effect on the listening Gideon too. On the spy Gideon. For that, at this time, he must have been at an all-time low. Facing 135,000 men with an army, a force of his own, reduced by the Lord to 300. But you see, when he had this though, his confidence, confidence must have soared. For while again Gideon didn't know how God was going to do it, yet he knew that the Lord was telling him that he was going to do something. For had he not heard this from the lips of his pagan enemies, had not the Lord already placed his fear into their hearts? Well, we've looked at God's way, we've looked at his means. Let's finally look at the end, at the end result of all of this. And I'm not going to go into too much of all the detail of this, the jars and trumpets and lamps, etc. Because again, it's all pretty obvious that the Midianites in their fear and their heightened sense of anxiety and their anticipation, that they must have supposed that in some way, as they heard and saw this, that in some way the army of Israel had sneaked up on them at night and caught them off guard. They didn't know how they could do it, how 32,000 men could sneak up on them unnoticed. Of course they hadn't, only 300 had, making the noise of 32,000. But the Midianites didn't know this. And so they fled. They were routed. That's the details of what happened. But the point I want to bring home to you is this. That here, the Lord brought victory out of the jaws of defeat. Here he turned darkness into light. Here he turned despair into joy. And he was able to do this because he had a people available to him. A handful of people available. And people not of great faith, sorry, not of great ability, but people of true faith and absolute commitment. Now what I want to say to you now is that as I look at the situation in Gideon's time, I see just so many parallels with our own land today. If you see in our day, In this country we live in, the numbers are dwindling. Just like it was in Gideon's day, the numbers of God's people are dwindling. So many tell us, but that doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother some. For I think we're actually, what's happening is we're beginning to get down to the real core of God's people in churches throughout the land. We're down to people, not who come along because... They think it makes them look good because they feel they should come or they feel they have to come. But we're getting down to people who want to come. Who know God and who want to be in his presence and who want to worship him and give him glory. And personally, I'm, I'm quite relaxed and happy about that because these are people that I believe God can begin to actually do something in. I really do. Also, I sense among some Christians today a growing desire for God, and a growing confidence, at least a sense of anticipation that in our day, God again is ready to do something mighty. I believe that. I honestly do. And then in the world out there, the world around us, I believe there is fear. I believe there's fear. Now, there are all sorts of fear. 
out there in the world today. But I tell you, I believe that at the heart of it all, underlying it all, though it's often unacknowledged and unrecognized, even by the church, I believe there is a spiritual fear. A spiritual fear. Because we've turned from the Lord and we're beginning to pay the consequences. And I believe that there is yet, unless we turn back to God, an even greater price to pay. And men and women, in their spirit, deep within them, they sense it. They sense it. Or they try and run from it. They try to hide from it behind materialism and pleasure-seeking, behind an obsession with the trivial to stop them thinking about the important and big things. They try to laugh it off. But in the secret places of their hearts, there are many, I believe, in our world who aren't actually laughing today. Now, deep down, they're afraid. They're maybe not able to express what they're afraid of, but they know that there's something wrong with this world, and it's getting worse. They know that there's something wrong with their lives. That fear, I tell you, I believe, is at heart a fear of the Lord. It's a spiritual fear. Now, you see, if you put it all together, although in places this sounds terrible, yet together, I think it's exciting. Because it seems to suggest to me that there is so much in place that we could again be on the verge of a move of God as in Gideon's day. And all that God is looking for is again a people of faith who are ready to trust him, ready to be totally committed and available to him. So what I want to ask is, are we ready to be part of that? Are we ready to be part of God's 300? Are we ready to encourage one another, love one another, build one another up in faith and be available to God? Are we ready in this day to be used in a mighty way by our God? Not for our sake, but for the sake of his glory. I pray that we are. Let's come and pray together now. Father, we just want to praise you and thank you that you're at work in our world today. Just as you were at work in the days of Gideon, you're at work today. And as you chose those 300, Lord, you're calling it a people who are ready to be faithful, ready to serve you. Lord, may we be numbered among those people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.